Every now and then when we get to this point in the worship service before I pray, I just take a few moments to remind us why we do it. We don't pray before the sermon because it's a nice thing to do. We don't pray because it's part of a liturgy. We pray because it is important for us to remember that apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, it is impossible for us to understand truth in such a way that we are affected. We can get the ideas with our mind. But the word cannot go into our hearts and give us that illumination, that understanding. It will not be that kind of word that that aunt just read for us. It will not actually impart wisdom if the spirit does not open us. And so we need to take a few moments to humble ourselves before God and say to him, God, unless you show up and open our eyes by our spirit, we can't understand. This will be an exercise in vanity and futility and I should do something else if we didn't have the spirit. So will you join me in this time of prayer and give it the attention that it deserves and make my words simply your own as we pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the testimonies of people that express themselves in songs that we can sing, in words that invite us into their stories. Thank you for the support of family and friends. You've not left us alone as Rebellion reminded us in this journey. But now at this moment, in order to understand what you have to say, that takes it beyond mere an intellectual ascent to an engagement of the heart that produces change in life, we acknowledge we are totally helpless to accomplish that. The cleverest words, the best arranged sermon, the, well, the best crafted worship service is totally powerless to do anything for us. But your spirit, commanding the light to shine in our heart, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and all in the person and the face of Jesus Christ is what we need. And so Spirit of God, descend upon us we pray. Touch lips that speak and ears that hear to accomplish your eternal and divine purposes in our life. You have brought us here today by divine appointment. We pray that you will accomplish your purposes in Jesus' name. I still remember the first book that I wrote in 1988 and when the publisher sent me an advanced copy of the book, I remember walking across from here over to our back hallway and not only a few members of our own family but some extended family members were there and some of them knew they'd been mentioned in the book. So each one quickly took the book, turned to the page where their name appeared, read a few sentences, passed on the book to the next person and gave it back to me and 22 years later, most of them haven't read the book yet. (laughs) The Bible calls it pride. Although those are fairly gentle expressions of it. And there isn't one of us that isn't affected by the sin of pride. And it's on God's agenda this morning as we resume our study of of Isaiah. We've been looking at this block of chapters from 13 to 23. Because of the nature of those chapters as being repetitive and containing some difficult imagery. We aren't kind of picking our way through it in detail. We're taking a big picture look at it. Last week we looked at them as a block to look at the symbolism of Babylon in the scriptures as representing the pursuit of human glory apart from God. That in itself, of course, is a manifestation of pride. As we take a second look at these same chapters, we will find that from beginning till end, there is another recurring theme, and that is the theme of human pride. For example, in the opening chapter, in chapter 13, we read these words. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. And a few verses later in chapter 13 verse 19, 
Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the glory of the Babylonians' pride, will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. At the other bookend in Isaiah chapter 23, who has purposed this against Tyre, the bestower of crowns, whose merchants were princes, whose traders were the honor of the earth? The Lord of hosts has purposed it to defile the pompous pride of all glory and to dishonor all the honor of the earth. So from the beginning in chapter 13 to the end in chapter 23, God will dismantle the pompous pride of the nations. So it would seem that just as we need a regular exposure to the central message of Isaiah, that if we will not stand firm in faith, we will not stand firm at all. It seems that we also need a regular reminders of the problem of human pride and the associated call to live as humble men and women. And if the focus last week was Babylon, this week our focus is going to be the, the nation of Moab. Now, most of us don't know where Moab is, and so I have a little map for you. And by the way, the map I found was horizontal, which is not the way to look at Israel. So the words are kind of upset, but don't worry about them. Just look at the colors. On the left-hand side, that, that light blue is Judah. That's the southern part, kingdom of Judah, which is where Isaiah is doing most of his preaching. Then you have the Dead Sea there, that blue thing. And on the right of that, the pink section, that's Moab. Okay? That's, so that's the country that's being focused on today by Isaiah. The, the salmon-colored stuff on the north is where Assyria was, and, and further up above that is the kingdom of Assyria that is attacking. And at the time of this uh, warning of judgment that Isaiah is pronouncing in chapter 15 and 16, the Assyrians are attacking from the north, and so the Moabites are fleeing to the south, and they find themselves at the Arnon River across the Dead Sea from Judah. And so Isaiah in this poetry is imagining an interchange that takes place. He imagines some envoys from Moab who are being sent to Judah and they are requesting some help. And this, this is what is found in these first four verses. Send the lambs to the ruler of the land, to the mount of the daughter of Zion. Like fleeing birds, like a scattered nest, so are the daughters of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. Give counsel, grant justice, shelter the outcasts, do not reveal the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you. Be a shelter to them from the destroyer. If we would put it in the vernacular today, it would be like a, a delegation from Moab that is going to the rulers of Judah and saying, hey, take us in as political refugees. Especially our women, usually women and children suffer in times of war. Please take us in. We're in dire disaster. Give us protected status as resident aliens and refuse all requests for extradition back to the home country. <laughs> that would be modern day language to explain their request. And by the way, they're also saying, we're in danger, so hurry up, make up your mind quickly. We don't, we don't have time for bureaucracy here. Quickly make up your mind and let us in. That's the 21st century language that represents this. Now, at the other end of this request, in verse 7, we find Moab is still wailing. Verse 7 says this, Therefore let Moab wail. Wail for Moab. Let everyone wail. So it kind of looks like they didn't get the request. They, they went to Judah for asylum, and they didn't get it. If we were to fill in the gaps in verses 5 and 6, you and I would assume Judah was very cruel. They turned the refugees away. They said, no, there's no room for us. Get back on those boats and go back out. You suffer if you want to, as often happens these days. But is that what happened? Did Judah refuse their request? Now remember, this is all poetry. Isaiah is putting poetry together to imagine another scenario. This is actually what verse 5 says. When the oppressor is no more and destruction is seized, and he who tramples underfoot is vanished from the land. Then a throne will be established in steadfast love. And on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David. One who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. Now what's that doing there? I mean it doesn't make any logical sense to following a request for political asylum. 
But as I said, this is poetry. And what Isaiah is saying is, Judah's response, at least God's response, to any country that looks to Judah for help, if I can translate this into 21st century language, it would go something like this. Yes, Moab, you can come in. We'll be happy to give you protection, but you need to know something about our country. Our kings are not like your kings. We have kings like you have, but our kings are different. Our kings have descended from David. And David represents a special promise that God gave to us as a nation. You see, we are the people of God. We have been chosen by God. We've been chosen to be a blessing to the nations. And yes, we want to bless you. We want to protect you. But the only way you can get protection here is if you submit to our king. And in submitting to our king, you are submitting to our God. And so if you're willing to come under those conditions, we'd be very happy to give you that. (laughs) The problem was Moab said, no, thank you. That's an entrance price we are not willing to pay. We'll send lambs. Remember the section opened with send lambs? Moab used to send lambs to Israel's kings before. Basically what they're saying is, if you want money, we'll give it to you. You know why? Because when we pay for what we get, we're still in charge. That's still self-salvation. Oh, if you want money, if you want lambs, we'll give you. But this business about submitting to your king, we're not interested in that. Submitting to a king who blesses nations by grace and rules in justice and righteousness, that would be tantamount to, amounting that, amount, tantamount to saying, I can't save myself. And that's the price I'm not willing to pay. And we know that is what happened because the verse 6 now says clearly that was the issue. We have heard of the pride of Moab, how proud he is of his arrogance, his pride and his insolence and his idle boasting. He doesn't use one word. The word pride is mentioned three times here. Insolence and idle boasting. What do these words mean? They all carry some very specific meaning. Pride we're familiar with. Insolence, in the Hebrew language, carries the idea of an outburst of anger or displeasure. And idle boasting is, is boasting that is not grounded in facts, but in illusions. You and I might call it so-and-so is full of hot air. You know. So, if you want to imagine Moab, poetically, Isaiah is imagining Moab's response. What did you say? You didn't hear us properly. We asked for political asylum. What's all this religious talk? We're not interested in your religion. We're not interested in your king. Are you going to give us political asylum or not? Uh, as far as religion is concerned, ours is much better than yours, thank you. We're not interested in that. They get angry. That's the insolence. That's the boasting. Now, really this conversation didn't take place. There were no real envoys that were sent. Judah didn't really give that response. Moab didn't really respond this way. This is all Hebrew poetry. And if you look at chapters 15 and 16, they are structured in such a way as to bring the center of that whole structure to verse 6. The point that Isaiah was making in this section is that Moab was in danger politically and geographically and they could have got protection from Judah if only both Judah and Moab had trusted in the living God. That was the point of this whole section. They refused it and they continued to wail. The problem of Moab is the problem of all of us. Arnold Toynbee, the great historian who has studied this study the sweep of civilization. I think he has identified nine great civilizations that the world has known so far. And he has studied the nature and character of civilizations across the broad sweep of human history. And he came to the conclusion that self-worship is a fundamental religion of all civilizations. Although they find expression in various forms. And what is true of civilizations is true of every one of us. Hence the incident with the book that I talked about. Why is this? And what is it? We need to understand the nature of pride. Our church fathers identified pride as the deadliest of the seven deadly sins. 
Last week we looked at Babylon. And, and the mindset of Babylon was described by, I will make a name for myself. Another manifestation of pride. And in the 14th chapter, the chapters before the section on Moab, there's a powerful set of verses that describe the mindset of the king of Babylon. These are the verses we find. Isaiah chapters 14, 12 to 15. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Now, Bible scholars have long believed that these verses are so powerful, so uh, dramatic in their description of a mindset, that they probably don't just refer to the king of Babylon, but to the prime mover behind that spirit, and may in fact even represent a description of the satanic mindset that led to his expulsion from the Garden of Eden. Whether that is so or not, this is a graphic picture of human pride, and it is characterized by the five I will statements. Notice what they say. First of all, I will ascend unto heaven. It is what we call upward mobility. The whole focus is on climbing upward. That's not enough. He says, the next thing he says is, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God, I will set my throne. The stars of God in the Old Testament almost certainly refer to the angels. And so this individual's aspirations are not just upward mobility, but I actually want to become the ruler of all the angels. If that's not enough, it says, I will sit on the Mount of Assembly, both in Babylonian and Canaanite mythology, as well as in, in the Old Testament. The Mount of Assembly was the place where, the, in their case, their pantheon of gods, and in Judah's case, Jehovah dwelt. In other words, it was a place of worship. So this individual was saying, I want to become the object of worship. Not only will I move heavenward, not only do I want to sit enthroned and become the ruler of the angels, I want to become the object of worship. <laughs> And by the way, it reaches its ultimate expression when it says, I will make myself like the Most High God. I want to be equal with God. It is these five I will statements that capture the heart of, of, of the mindset of pride. Something else about pride that is unique. Think about it. It is the only sin that can be committed by a perfect being in a perfect environment. The Bible portrays for us that Satan was in all probability the most glorious of all creations. Ezekiel chapter 28 describes that in detail for us. Now here's the deal. Imagine yourself suddenly created. One moment you weren't, the next moment you were. And you are beautiful, you are glorious, you are magnificent. You can't tell whether you've not always been there or not. If your first moment of consciousness is you gloriously appearing. Satan was in all probability created like that. Now here's the deal as well. Also immediately before him was another spectacular, gorgeous being. God. Now the inherent in that creation of a perfect being was the possibility of this thought entering that perfect being's mind, which is, who came first? Uh, why should I worship you? Maybe you should be worshipping me. You see, Pride is the only sin that is possible to be committed by a perfect being in a perfect environment and Satan committed it. And for that, we are told he was brought down.
And his very first temptation to human beings was exactly the same thing. Remember he said, why don't you assert your independence of God? You will become like gods. That's why every single one of us is infected by the sin of pride. Now, I want to set that against the other mindset in the Bible. That is the quintessential opposite of this fivefold I will. And that is the mindset of Jesus that we've been singing about and will sing about again. When he became man, when he came down to earth, he lived a life as man in total dependence upon God and total loyalty to God. He lived the way Adam and Eve were supposed to live and didn't. And right at the very beginning of his ministry, you remember Satan came and tempted him too. And what was the temptation? Turn stones into bread, there's nothing evil with that. The temptation lay in the fact, he said, don't check with him. Do it yourself. Assert your independence of God. Well, Jesus defeated him. And then again in Gethsemane, if you were here for Good Friday, we looked at that. As Jesus was approaching that that final culminating act of obedience to God the Father, when he anticipated his death on the cross for our sins, he had to struggle all over again. And how did that prayer end? Not my will, but your will be done. This last colossal act of obedience was in fact the crowning achievement of an entire life of obedience to God. Jesus' whole life was characterized by not my will, but your will be done. In sharp contrast to I will, I will, I will, I will, I will of Satan. And if Genesis, if, if uh, Isaiah 14 captures the mindset of Satan, Philippians chapter 2 captures the mindset of Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, which is what Satan was grasping, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You notice the contrast between the two? Up here was upward mobility. I will, I will, I will, I will, and the result was no, you go down. The path to down is to try and go up. Over here is the exact opposite. He already was God. He chose to become human being. Becoming a human being, he chose to become a servant. Becoming a servant, he chose to die on the cross. And the path was down, down, down. And therefore God exalted him. The path to up is down. The path to down is up and the path to up is down. That's upward mobility. This is downward mobility. This is the mind of the enemy. This is the mind of Jesus. This is the quintessential contrast between the two mindsets that meets us at every step of the way. And by the way, the Apostle Paul writing to the Ephesians tells us that those who would follow Jesus, those who would embrace this mindset and this way of living, the God who exalts Jesus also exalts exalts the people. What does he say about us? He says, he makes us alive in Christ. He raises us up with Christ. He seats us with Christ. Everything that Satan wanted to do was actually good. God wanted to give it to us. The only difference was Satan said, I will do it myself apart from you. Here we let God do everything. Why? Then he gets all the glory, you see. That's the difference. 
It was always God's desire that we become like Jesus. But the way we become like Jesus is to let Him do it by humbling ourselves. He who was not equal grasped for equality, he who was equal surrendered it. Really all of the scriptures come down to this contrast. It is a contrast to to self-reliance, self-exaltation that ends up putting us down. We know the proverb that says pride always goes before a fall. And transformation through the Holy Spirit's grace which gives credit to Jesus and grace help to us. Let me take the next half of the sermon just to spell out some implications. First of all, for some of you, I don't know how many there are, there may be five, there may be 30, there may be one, maybe none, I don't know. But in a group this large, there's probably always somebody who has not yet bowed their knee to Jesus. For you, this is a call to abandon all self-righteousness and your ability to save yourself. For Moab, the issue was physical danger and physical salvation and physical protection which they gave up because they were not willing to submit to Israel's God. They would rather do it themselves and they suffered for that. It is exactly the same for the condition of our souls. To assure ourselves of eternal destinies being in the right place. To begin to live today the eternal life which is the life of abundance that Jesus promised for us. It is to abandon all trust in religion. Whether that religion is Hinduism or Islam or Buddhism or even Christianity as a religion. They're all self-help religions. They're all attempting to save us. They're all attempting to send more lambs to the king. But to trust instead in Jesus Christ's death on the cross alone for us and especially the sin of pride. To recognize in his resurrection and his exaltation that he is supreme Lord of the universe and to humble ourselves to him and to begin to live that life of service to him. And thereby find eternal life. But let me warn you. Just as Moab's pride kept her from the deliverance that could have been hers, so pride will keep you from salvation. In that same combination of idle boasting and insolence and arrogance, you will find yourself saying, I don't want it. If that's the price, I don't want salvation. I, don't, I like the path of I will, I will, I will, I will. I will make myself, into, I will fashion my own salvation. I don't like the path of downward mobility. Uh, the German philosopher Nietzsche said that. He hated Christianity because he said Christianity feminizes men. He said we need to become the people that we are supposed to be by becoming aggressive and assertive. Nietzsche ended up a madman. And two individuals upon whom he had tremendous influence, Hitler and Stalin, have created all kinds of chaos and suffering in this world. Now you might immediately say to me, oh come on, don't tell me I'm as bad as Hitler and Stalin. Listen, let me tell you something. That's just a reaction that shows how proud you are. Because left to ourselves, given the right circumstances, every one of us is capable of doing what Hitler and Stalin did. And if you think I don't know what I'm talking about, let me tell you from the mouth of a concentration camp survivor. Many years ago on CBS News, Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes, he was interviewing a, German, a concentration camp survivor, a Jewish man by the name of Yahiel Dinyur. And he showed a clip of the judgment at Nuremberg trials. And when Dinyur walked in, he saw Adolf Eichmann in the, in the defense 
stand. And he broke down, sobbing uncontrollably. And Mike Wallace pointed to that and turned to Daniel and said, What happened to you there? Did you, were you just overwhelmed by anger and hatred when you saw Adolf Eichmann? He said, No. He said, You see, back in the concentration camps, Eichmann was like a demigod to us because he held our destinies in his hands. He could send us to the gas chamber, he could send us to hard labor. He was our God. He said, When I walked into the courtroom that day, I realized he was just a man. And he said, I suddenly realized that I was capable of everything that Adolf Eichmann did. And he finished with these words, Adolf Eichmann is alive in every single one of us. That's what pride will do to us unchecked. So the central issue for you today is will you humble yourself? Will you acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord? Will you acknowledge the pride that is in the, that rages in the human heart? And that it took the death of Jesus Christ on the cross to bring about forgiveness for that sin. Will you humble yourself? Will you yield yourself to him? And will you choose that life of downward mobility and service? But what about the rest of us, which is the bulk of us? The been there, done that, we've been baptized, whether as a child, whether as an adult, we've done all that's over, done with. We're Christ's followers. What does this have to say to us? Listen. Pride doesn't die easily. <laughs> That's why we need repeated reminders. If pride will not keep you from the salvation that is in Jesus, it will keep you from enjoying the abundance of Christ's life in us. Let me just spell out various aspects of life. It affects every single aspect of life. And we need to make the move from here. I don't know which of these is going to fit which of you here. I know some of you well. I don't know most of you in terms of the detail. I certainly don't know most of your hearts. I can barely get to know my own well. And so you please make the translation, okay, where it applies to you more. Marriage, first of all. The five I will spirit is alive and well in marriages. Women grasp for equality. And men, before you get too proud, too comfortable with that, we grasp for ascendance. One wants to be equal, the other wants to rule. That's why egalitarianism will never work. That's why hierarchy will never work. And hasn't. There is only one hope to bring joy back into marriages, and that's mutual submission out of reverence for Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5 says that very clear. We need to grasp God's design for marriage. The most desperate need in marriages, good ones and bad ones and everything in between, is to recover God's purpose in marriage that is not our happiness but our holiness that we learn by learning to serve one another out of reverence for Christ. The Bible tells us that marriage is a supreme illustration of Jesus' relationship to the church. That is so colossal in its implication that it should dwarf everything else when it comes to looking at marriage. And so we need in our marriages to walk from here to here. To walk from the I wills. To the path of downward mobility and service. Trusting God. Trusting God to exalt us in our marriages in such a way that will bring glory to Him and blessing to us. So even in our marriages, if we will not stand firm in faith, we will not stand firm at all. How about parent-children relationship? Any teenagers here, let me talk to you first. Because it's around that age that your I wills begin to assert themselves. Why can't I make up my mind as to what I should wear? 
Why can't I decide what to eat and how much and when? Why can't I decide what music to listen to, what things to wear? Why can't I? After all, the reasoning powers are coming into play as well. And the sharper they are, the more powerful they are. Does that mean as you grow older, you can't ask your parents questions? Does that mean you can't ask for reasonable, rational discussions? Of course not. It all has to do with the spirit in which you ask the questions and the spirit in which you take the final answer, especially if it's one that you don't like. That's for you. Now parents, same problem for us. How about the spirit that refuses to tolerate any questions from our children? How about the spirit that does not want any feedback? That when it's given, resists us completely. I remember when our children were teenagers, one of the most influential and helpful books for me was written by a man called Kent Huggins. The book was called Parenting Adolescence. And in his opening chapter he says, I made the, very dis- the author saying, I made the very disconcerting discovery that all of the things that were frustrating me in my teenagers were all revealing issues in my own heart that I needed to deal with. Like marriage, God gives us our children to awaken us to the pride and the problems that are in our own hearts and then to learn to serve in various ways. How about in the church? Leadership, first of all. Pastors, elders, board members. We've got to be very careful about pride. Not too long ago, I was talking to a young pastor. Godly young man. He'd been in the church for two years. He said, I'm so tired. I said, how come? He said, I spend so much of my time. I spend so much of my time working with board members. Every one of whom thinks he has the answer to the issues of church. Not just him and them and me. He says, between one another too. Every one of them has their own solutions, their own answers. He said, it gets so tiring. Even though I'm in a congregation that loves me. So we as leaders need to be careful about the sin of pride. And people, how about you? How about the self-satisfied spirit? That says, I don't need any help. I don't need to be mentored. I don't need counseling. I don't need other people to help me. When Colossians 3 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another. I don't need that. When Hebrews 10 says, don't forsake the assembling together of yourself. Spur one another on to love and good works. I don't need that. I can figure it all out by myself. I mean, all of us suffer from that to some extent. Uh, Heard not too long ago about some people that we knew, they live in another city, uh, running into some marriage troubles. The, the man in question had violated some boundaries very seriously. And you know what his first response was? He said, I'm going to read all the books I can find on psychoanalysis because I want to psychoanalyze myself and fix the problem. That's what I'm talking about. That self-sufficient spirit is just pride in disguise. And then how about in ministry? And by ministry, I don't talk about just formal ministry. All of you who work out in the real world, you are ministers too. You are just as much ministers of the gospel as we are. How can pride show up in that case? I'll tell you how it shows up in our cases. It's a temptation for breath rather than depth. And the better somebody else is in their ministry, the more deadly the temptation. And you know, people kind of assume it. Uh, some of you may not know, if you're relative newcomers to our church, that for the first 16 years of my ministry in this church, I was not the senior pastor, I was the preaching pastor. And very early in those 16 years, 
a relatively high up individual in our denomination asked me one day, so how long are you going to be satisfied being a preaching pastor? When are you going to become a senior pastor? He automatically assumed that I could just not be happy doing what I'm doing right now. He was dead wrong. But this is the assumption. And so all of us in positions of leadership in ministry, this is the temptation for us. And so it is in your workplace. Whether it's the aspiration for power or position, the corner office or titles. I remember, I remember a colleague of mine at Atomic Energy of Canada. It was 30 years ago now. While, in, while he was still working, he got his the PhD. And people had been calling him Mr. So-and-so for so long or by his first name. He got really upset that people were not calling him Dr. So-and-so. See, in, in all of these aspects of life, pride is alive and well. And so repeatedly we come to that fork in the road. And there are two paths that are, converging, uh, that are diverging before us. The marriage, in marriage, in parenting, in church work, in ministry. One is the path of upward mobility. I will, I will, I will, I will. And self-sufficiency. And God says, be careful. Because that's the way to down. The other path is the path of voluntary submission and service and trust that God will exalt us. Repeatedly, you will come to that fork in the road over and over and over again in all these areas of life. That's why we repeatedly need to be reminded of the problem of pride and the call to humility. And what we need to remember at that time is what the Bible says. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So the question comes down to something really elementary if you can only remember it. Do you want God to oppose you? Do you want God to staunchly stand in opposition to you in your marriage, in your ministry, in your work, in your relationships at home and in the neighborhood? If so, continue to climb upward. Or do you want grace to be lavished upon you? Do you want grace to be poured out upon you? Then wherever you are, teenager, adult, leader, church member, embrace the mind of Christ and receive the grace of Christ and be exalted in a way that will not hurt you. Because he knows exactly how much exaltation and in what way will bless you without destroying you. All the while Jesus getting all the glory. So does all this really work, you might ask? Let me just finish with a story. And I have the individual's permission to tell you the story. She's a young woman. I want to, For the ease of telling the story, I'm going to call her Angela. If there are any Angelas here, I'm not talking about you, okay? She was in her final year of university preparing for a career for teaching. And uh, those of you who have done that route know that you have to do some practice teaching. And so one day a week in her final year, she would trot off to a school and and, uh, teach with another experienced teacher. Well, this was a really difficult relationship. She would never get feedback. Angela would never get feedback from the senior teacher. Uh, The teacher would always complain about Angela's lessons, but would never have looked at the lessons. And so every day of her placement, she would come back defeated, frustrated, discouraged. And now was coming that final month of placement when she would have to go there for four whole weeks and teach every day. She had put all her lesson plans for that whole month together and she sent it off to the teacher. No feedback, nothing came. It was now the Thursday of the week before she was to start. So she sent an email to this teacher. So the teacher sends back an email now and says, uh, this Thursday, remember now, says, I've looked at all the plans. I'm going to cover all that material myself. So please redo all the plans again. And I need you to change the stuff. 
But you can imagine how broken and tired and frustrated Angela was. She could have fought. She could have chosen this path. I'm going to go to the authorities over you. She could have appealed to the principal. Instead, she chose this path. She decided to pray. Not only for herself, she decided to pray for the teacher too. And in all weekend, she worked through all, reworked through all the lessons. She went to school on Monday. Nervous, apprehensive, what was going to happen. To her utter surprise, this teacher was like a somebody completely different. And now, after a whole year of coming back defeated and frustrated, she was coming back encouraged and excited and affirmed day after day after day from the same person. But that wasn't the whole story. It was, the final chapter was written this past Friday, which was her final day. She'd gone early in the, in the class to set up the classroom and decorate it all. When the teacher came in, she was so overwhelmed. She went and got the principal and got all the other teachers. She said, come, come and see what this Angela has done. You know? Not only that, about 27 kids in, her, in the class that she taught, many from low-income homes, cooked all kinds of ethnic foods for a little banquet and it gave her tributes. And one of them said, you didn't just teach, you preached to us. You know? And the principal sat through all of this. And he said to her, he said, I have a plaque in my office kind of encapsulates my dream that teachers will impact their students. You didn't just impact one, but a whole classroom. See, that is exaltation that comes from the path of humbling. It works. It works. If we are humble enough to learn from a 23-year-old. I want to do my blessing in two parts. First of all, our brother Ken Hasnari is leaving tomorrow for, for Senegal. Uh, when, when Ken and Tara were in Libya many years, I know they met a doctor there uh, who's in Senegal and Ken's burden has been for one of the major unreached people groups of the world, the Fulani people. And so Ken is really going out for two weeks on a fact-finding mission and uh, Ken, we just want to send you out with the blessing of the Spirit of God. May God grant you eyes and heart to be able to see and feel the pulse and the heart of God and then may his uh, vision just make it clear for you as to what your next step should be and may he bless your time with the doctor. I've forgotten his name right now. Doctor, so may may he bless that time with you. May you be a refreshment to him that he might be encouraged in his labors from the blessings of this congregation. And for all of us, I just may, may the Spirit of God just neutralize every seed of idle boasting and arrogance and insolence. And instead may you with great delight embrace the way of Christ. And may you know the exaltation that both blesses you and brings glory to God. For the blessing of God gives health and strength without hurt. Go in Jesus' name.